morning. How's everyone? Good. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is where we'll be. We've been marching through the book of Mark for a while now. And so we'll keep on going in Mark chapter 10. I think that Mark one day sat down while he was writing his gospel and decided, I wonder if one day someone will try to preach passage by passage through the gospel of Mark. And so he decided to stream together a few controversial passages, one after the other. So last week we had to talk about divorce and remarriage and all of those fun topics. Um, This week we get to talk about money. Yay, glad I came to church, right? Um, Even for me, money in the church kind of raises the hair on the back of my neck, right? I go, hmm, I'd rather not hear about it. I I, I don't like how these two things have mingled throughout the years. Um, I have never once preached on tithing. I rarely talk about money. If I do, it's kind of a rabbit trail in a sense of like, how are we serving our community, things of that nature. One of the comments we used to get in 09 and 010, uh, when we were first kind of starting to, to become the FC Cube that we are today, was people come from other churches who would say things like, every Sunday we're there, they ask for money. They ask in a new, more impassioned plea for a tithe, that kind of thing. And I was like, well, I'll take it as a compliment. Really, it's just because we've never needed money. I mean, we have such a generous congregation. They've always been so generous with their tithing. I've never felt the need to, you know, tear up a little bit and be like, we just need, if you could just give a little more money, everybody just 10%. Um, we, uh, even, in our, even in our lowest years, I mean, we've been good at FCQ. The Depression hit, all nonprofits went south. We went south, but I think we went a little less south than everybody else. Um, we have a lot of young people in our congregation. A lot of them are missing today. A couple of them are here. Um, they don't, you know, they don't wear full-time jobs. Ryan puts buttons in the offering plate, and I keep telling him that's not currency, Ryan. <laughs> we just throw that away. You should keep it, make like a little bag, okay, and just keep it for shirts and stuff. Um, so, so we don't, we, we never really talk about money a lot, and um, we don't talk about it a whole lot on a personal. Uh, sense either. And, and, and a part of that makes me feel a little guilty. And I'll tell you why. Because we claim, and I claim to be a Jesus-centered preacher and a Jesus-centered church. And Jesus actually talked about money a lot. Um, in fact, if you were to list off topics, it would be up at the top, if not the top, of what he spoke on. Um, his, his money, his currency, is how we use the things that we own and the, the money that we have. Um, and so this morning we'll be in a passage where it talks about money. It's, it's kind of personal to me. Um, most of you know recently I made the decision to re- uh, resign from Fort Bend Christian Academy. Um, I had felt God calling me to do that for a few weeks. And um, really, you can ask my close friends um, and family, really what, what hindered my ability to finally obey was the money. The big paycheck that I was getting for an easy job. Uh, and I'd go... Every conversation, yeah, 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 all that makes sense. But that's walking away from digit, 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 right, of dollars. And, and I was faced with a situation where my income was and is being cut in more than half, okay? And I kind of prided myself on um, being able to make a good amount of money as a minister, okay? So I've had three jobs. I've worked here, I've worked at the school full-time, and I've been in itinerant ministry, uh, which can pay you as well. Um, and when I went into the ministry, I felt kind of like I was walking away from the chance to make a lot of money as a businessman or as something of that nature. Um, and I've always kind of arrogantly been proud that I've been able through those three jobs to make more money than my friends who went to medical school. 
and this or that or this or that. And suddenly, this spring, I was faced with the reality that I was back to living paycheck to paycheck, which I had not done since I was a college student, living in a $500 a month rental apartment with a roommate, um, you know, every month being like, can we have cable this month? Can we have, do we really need electricity? I mean, we've got flashlights, <laughs> do we can make a camp out out of it? Um, and so, you know, I was, I was faced with the pressures of, you know, not having a lot of money. And, and actually, while Jesus has harsh statements about money, what we'll find is I think there are also truths here um, that reassure us about the way that finances should work in God's world and in God's kingdom. And it was some of the truths in the lesson uh, that we'll see today that was able to reassure me uh, to be able to take the step that I needed to take. So, um, let's go into the text with an open heart and an open mind. Um, it's important to see what Jesus has to say about things, um, even if they don't necessarily line up with what we might originally think. And so, um, we'll read together in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. They're Jeremy. Get away. But when Jesus saw it, seriously, they are Jeremy, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, remember he's going south to Jerusalem, where he'll encounter the temple and encounter the Jewish authorities and eventually be crucified. As he was setting out on his journey south, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now I've always felt bad for this man. Seems like he's got good intentions at the start, right? He runs up, he kneels down, he gives Jesus exalted, I'm not proposing again, gives Jesus his exalted uh, title, good teacher. And I feel like Jesus' response is a little snobby, is a little obnoxious. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Uh, like if you were to come up to me after service and were like, hey, that was a good sermon. And I was like, there are no good sermons. God is only good. And you're like, I really like the sanctuary. There is no good except for God, right? Jesus, is he making some rule here? We can't use the adjective. He calls things good elsewhere. Um, so from the start, I'm kind of like Jesus is giving this guy a little rough, a little rough of a shake, okay? Jesus goes, why do you call me good? There's one good, God alone. And he says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And here we wonder, is he, I mean, is he being really honest? Maybe he just really was like the perfect child. Um, I've kept all these from his from my youth, and, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's an important passage. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This is Jesus' invitation to discipleship. Um, it appears that Jesus wants this guy to follow him literally. Most of the time, Jesus has his inner core that goes with him everywhere, and then he invites people to become his disciples to follow him in spirit and action and, and, and in truth, right, in these communities. But they stay in their communities in Galilee and, and Capernaum and wherever they are. Here, though, it seems like he's willing to have this guy, like, pick up a backpack. Come with me. We're going south. Um, but there's one requirement. There's one prereq for this. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then one of the saddest verses in the passage, verse 22, 
Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Mark's this masterful storyteller. If we were reading this for the first time, you don't find out he's wealthy until after Jesus gives that command. And again, I feel for this guy. I think he was willing to do a lot of things to follow Jesus. And I, I think he, this wasn't an immediate decision. I think he thought about it. I think he weighed the pros and the cons. And I think he went away with some tears in his eyes. And I think he probably thought about it for the rest of his life. That moment where I was there in front of Jesus. And he gave me the invitation to come and to follow. But I just couldn't do what he had asked me to do. And so then Jesus starts to teach. He looks around and says to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who could possibly be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for with him all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, See, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, and persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Many who are first will be last, but the last will be first. So the passage breaks itself up nicely into three little sections, okay? You've got Jesus and the children, and then you've got Jesus dialoguing with a rich young man, and then you've got Jesus dialoguing and giving teachings on sacrifice and rewards with the disciples. So we're just going to walk through each section as it comes to us. You get this first section where parents are apparently sending their children to go hang out with Jesus, to uh, go be touched by him, to be embraced by him. Now his disciples are rebuking children in the first century. Children were worthless. Um, there maybe was some sentimental value from the mother, um, but for the most part, you had children for your profit, for benefit, right? They were only useful in our day, right, when they can get the beer from the fridge or turn the channel for you, right? In um, that day, when you could work for me or when I could sell you off as a daughter and, and get things from you. Children had no rights. They were very vulnerable. The disciples are like, Jesus doesn't have time to be hanging out with children, it's interesting, we never see this anywhere else in the Gospels. Um, the children don't appear to be sick. They don't need healing of any sort. They just kind of have recognized that there's this life that comes out of Jesus, and they want their kids to go have a chance to be around Jesus. And Jesus, like a, uh, I mean, a very gentle father, right, is embracing them and is welcoming them. And he says, in fact, if you're not like these children, you can't even get into the kingdom. Now, here's what I think he means. I don't think he means that we need to be childish, in the sense that we throw temper tantrums and don't listen and are disobedient and things of that nature. I think what he's saying and the point he's getting at is we need to embrace and come into the kingdom as creatures, as people who are dependent on our Heavenly Father. An infant, we've got one right now in the sanctuary, beautiful child. An infant is the most clear picture you'll get of a human being as a creature. She is dependent on her parents for food and for shelter and for clothing and for love and for comfort. 
Now, the more we grow up and the more we own and the more skills we acquire, the less dependent we get on other people. And equally, the less dependent we think about us being with God, right? I don't need God to buy me lunch. I've got around $4.57 in my bank account, and Lindsay's going to buy me lunch. I don't have to. I don't have to depend on God buying me lunch. But children give us this great example, this moment in time where you see human beings as they actually are, dependent creatures. If we were honest, we're equally dependent, right? There's a million things that could go wrong with your body right now. There's a million things that could go wrong with the world right now. And God's upholding all of it. Our lives are creatures. And this will play into Jesus' teachings about money. He says, you've got to come into the kingdom being able to be dependent on me, trusting me. Not self-dependent and self-trusting, but understanding that I'll provide for you and I'll take care of you. And then a rich young man approaches. And he asks a question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now I want you to think of this question not so much as asking, how do I go to heaven after I die? Um, but rather, think of eternal life, could be translated life of eternity. Um, the, the Jewish people divided the time, a temporal dualism, into two times. A bad, evil time that we're in right now, and then a good, age-to-come time when God sets up his kingdom. And when God sets up his kingdom, he's going to invade the world in a powerful way. Invasion of the Lamb, that's what we're calling the series. And he's going to judge those who are evil, and he's going to inherit, let those people who are righteous inherit this new land for all of eternity. The question this guy is asking is, what do I need to do to make sure that when things get settled out, I'll be able to be on the right side of history? I won't be judged and punished, but instead I'll inherit your beautiful creation that you will remake. Jesus says, you know the commandments? Well, first he says, why do you call me good? You'll notice the second time the guy talks to him, he leaves out the good adjective. He says, teacher. He's a fast learner. He says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, and honor your father and mother. And he said to them, I've done all of these things from my youth. Here's what I want you to notice, though. We're going to pull up on the screen. It works better visually, at least for me as I was studying the passage. What Jesus lists off as the commandments are part of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Um, who thinks without looking at the Bible or the sheet of paper they could recite the Ten Commandments? All right. <laughs> well, you're in a good place, okay? Here are the Ten Commandments. They're usually broken up into two sections. The first four, no gods before me, no worshiping religious images, don't take my name in vain, keep the Sabbath day holy, are usually considered God-centered. They're all partaking to our relationship with God. And then the next six usually are considered human-centered, right? It's about our relationships with each other. Honor your father and mother, which, by the way, came with a death penalty. Children, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And then don't desire for more. Don't covet. Now, watch what Jesus does when he lists out the commands. He ignores totally the first four about God. He seems to imply that if you can get these right, your idols will be taken care of. He doesn't mention honor your mother and father first. He goes straight to murder, number six. Then he goes adultery. He goes to steal. He goes to lie. And then he changes the last command from don't covet to don't defraud. Don't get money by cheating other people out of it. Perhaps Jesus has this divine knowledge that for this man, coveting isn't a problem. He has everything he can need. 
The real problem is how did he get all of those things? He says, don't defraud. And then he adds on your father and mother last. So he has these six human-centered commands. And he changes the do not covet into the do not defraud. This is important to pay attention to. Jesus says, you lack one thing. He says, all these things you think you've done your whole life correctly, actually one of them you have been mistaken about. And by what Jesus tells him to do, sell everything, give it to the poor, it appears to be this defraud statement. So there are two, two ways perhaps this could happen. Maybe this actually was a shady businessman who practiced unethical business and was like a uh, you know, predatory lender uh, of sorts in the first century or who made um, uh, risky um, investments and who took from the poor and who lied to people and made bad business deals. Maybe he had actually defrauded him. I think, though, from a first century Jesus context, um, even the fact of owning a lot of money when people are around you would be considered defrauding others. Let me explain this. In the scriptures, wealth is originally a blessing from God. It's a sign that God likes you, that you're being obedient. But there's always this prophetic critique running throughout the Old Testament. We, if you remember the Micah series we did a few years ago, Micah is very harsh on anyone who has money. Not just people who have done it badly, but he says if you have money and there are people dying around you, you have blood on your hands for not sharing that money with them. Um, and then Jesus seems to enable this critique, keep this critique going in the New Testament with this sense that um, it's not money that's inherently bad. Wealth itself is not bad. Owning things is not bad. Creating wealth is not bad. Having wealth is not inherently bad. What Jesus says gets, where it gets dangerous is when you have a lot and there's people around you you don't have any. And you don't share. Remember he tells this parable? The rich man and Lazarus, the beggar. And he says, one day you're going to account if you have a lot of money for why you didn't share it with the people around you and you knew needed it. It's inequality that makes wealth dangerous for God. Wealth itself is not a bad thing. But wealth hoarded while neighbors live in poverty and in need is something you'll have to account for. This seems to be the situation this young man had been in. Um, where Jesus is speaking right now, they're surrounded by poverty. Everyone's a peasant. They're living day to day. And this man has so much. And Jesus says, this is defraud. This is... You're not helping out the poor. So you need to go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, Jesus does not make this command anywhere else. He doesn't make it ever again. It's by no means a universal command. You shouldn't probably go home and think, I wonder if I should sell everything I have and give it to the poor. Um, We know the early church, early Christians, some of them were very wealthy. Um, It's what you do with the wealth that matters. Does that make sense? I mean, you're not, you're not punished for having the bank account or the house or the three houses or the boats. There's no inherent punishment with that. It's when you hoard that and you see that as your own that Jesus says, maybe you're in some dangerous territory. So the man, disheartened, walks away and Jesus starts to teach. And he looked around them and said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For Jesus, the more wealth you have, the harder it is to follow him. It's a sliding scale. And this truth is present in dozens of Jesus' teachings on money. We might not like it. I don't particularly like it. We're all in this together. 
wealth is relative. There's global wealth and there's local wealth. Um, we're all wealthy globally. Most of the world's living under $2 a day, that kind of thing. Um, some of us are different spectrums of wealth locally uh, with our society around us, our, our, our city and our county and, and things of that nature. Um, so it's scary for us, but Jesus seems to think there's just sliding scale. The more you have, the harder it is to be dependent and to really let go of things and to follow me. And he takes it a step further. The disciples are amazed at these words, right? We thought wealth was this good thing. We thought wealth was this blessing. And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives a one-liner here. It's easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this serves two things at one time. It's supposed to be funny to you. For most Jews, a camel would have been the biggest animal they'd ever seen in real life. They didn't have zoos, right? They didn't have internet where they could search up dinosaurs, stuff like that. And for most Jews, uh, eye of a needle was the smallest hole they'd ever seen in their life. This is, this is kind of funny, right? Imagine trying to, actually sitting down, getting your executive team together, and going, how are we going to get this camel through the eye of that needle, okay? We'll spend weeks starving the camel, okay? We will tug and tug and tug on that eye until we get as big as possible. And we'll try different strategies. Maybe tail first. Maybe you put in a leg first. Maybe a head first. How's it going to happen? Um, the point of this is, right, it's not going to happen, which is the second purpose. It's impossible. Unless we miss the point, Jesus just said, rich people, it's impossible for them to enter the kingdom of God. Others throughout the years have tried to make their own paraphrases of Jesus' statement here in their current context. I want to give it a try. Maybe Jesus would say something like this today. How difficult is it for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven? In fact, it'd be easier for Donald Trump to fit through the debit card slot at an ATM machine than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Can you imagine Donald Trump trying to fit through the credit card slot at an ATM machine? Okay. I've got some ideas. Take off the toupee. Okay. Get some butter. Get a mirror in front of him so he can pump himself up. I'm the boss. I'm the boss. I'm the boss. But it's, it's just not going to happen, right? It's impossible. Now, the disciples are again amazed. And they said, then who can be saved? I mean, this is crazy talk. This is, this is really strict. Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And I want to notice two things. One, Jesus loved this man. It's the only time in Mark's gospel we're told explicitly that Jesus loved somebody. Jesus is not dealing with this man harshly even though it appears that way. Jesus sees this man and genuinely loves him. He invites him into the inner circle. The second thing to notice is Jesus says again, well, that's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Now, we've got to be careful how we interpret this. What most wealthy people do is they think this line is a cop-out for the earlier line. So they think, yeah, it's impossible for rich people to get into the kingdom, but, God makes exceptions. Hopefully us, right? Hopefully that young man. Um, and so what we, what we do is we say, that phrase is redefining obedience. Okay? Um, so, yeah, it's impossible if you don't do that to get into the kingdom. But, there's miracles that happen. God's gracious. 
So sometimes obedience can be wiggled around. I think that what he's actually doing is he's making this harder. He's saying, he's, he's redefining salvation for us. He's saying, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom, but with God all things are possible. What I think he means by that is not that rich man might be able to get in, but that one day they might meet a rich man who will sell all his stuff and follow him. Do you see the difference between the two? Jesus is not saying you don't have to obey to follow me. You can just do whatever you want. Jesus is saying there's going to be some miracles where people do actually follow me. Let's put it back up. I wanted to lighten up the sermon a little bit. So camel and the needle. <laughs> You're probably right. It probably is the camel through the needle. Sorry about your camel. Let's try it the other way. Kill the camel. Sad day for the camel. Um, could have saved both of them. So Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. I think what he's saying here is that um, while some wealthy people will not be able to respond to the um, requirements of discipleship, some perhaps will. Um, now what's amazing is if you look at the ways that people have interpreted this passage in these words, what you'll find is that rich people are very creative. So a lot of them are smart, that's why they got rich. Um, and they're very creative, so they've come up with really creative ways to get out of this teaching. Um, you get the two most popular ones. The first one is this. There's an a interpretation that goes around. Um, in fact, I'm positive it's being preached at a church today somewhere in North America and Australia. Just to be, just to be sure. Make my bet a little safer. That says this. There was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, which was infamous for being built way too small. And it was kind of a funny thing to watch a camel try to get through this gate. You had to force it on its knees. You had to like, push it through. You had to take all the cargo off, everything like that. And so what Jesus is saying is he's comparing it to this gate, right? It's just really difficult. It gets kind of awkward. It takes a lot of you know, action and intentionality. Um, what you find, though, when you look at the history of interpretation, no one ever once interpreted that passage that way or even mentioned an eye of a needle gate in Jerusalem until the 9th century. It's the first time it's admitted in history. We have no archaeological evidence. We have no textual evidence. We have no geographical evidence that a gate ever existed in Jerusalem that they made camels crawl through called the Eye of the Needle. But it says something a lot about us, that we could create a a made-up gate to make this passage a little more palatable for us. Another popular interpretation is that camel is actually a misinterpretation of a word for rope. And so there are perhaps ways with a smaller rope and a bigger eye that you can get it through, those kind of things. Again, there's no lexical, theological, grammatical, syntactical reasons. The Greek word here for camel is referring to a large animal. We try to get out of this interpretation. Jesus then starts talking about rewards. This is true that I say to you, Peter says, I've, I've left everything. And again, watch the language carefully. No one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or lands for my sake in the gospel. It's seven things. Will not receive, both now and in the future, let's count them. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, and persecutions. Persecutions wasn't part of the first one, so we're missing one of the first. Do you, can you see which one we're missing? Which one he didn't repeat as a promise? I heard it. Fathers. Fathers. 
Yeah, you don't get more fathers. You have one father in heaven, right? But your family will be extended. Now, this is a common passage for prosperity gospel preachers, right? Um, if you were just today to write me a check for $1,000, God has promised that you will receive before you die a hundred times that amount. A hundred thousand dollars. So just write the check, claim it, and wait for the blessings. Or you get people saying, you know, God wants you to own a hundred houses. There's no limit to the wealth that you can have. What they usually leave out is the sacrifice part. Like usually people are asking, like, where are my houses? When they're living in a house... Jesus said, no, you've got to leave the house first before you get something back, right? Um, um, I think what, what happens, how we should interpret this, is we come at it from an individualistic viewpoint. So we read through individual um, eyes and lenses, and so we're expecting these kind of rewards for me and myself. Jesus, though, lives in a very communal time, where you define yourself by your community, where you live in a community. And I think what he's saying is this. When you leave, when you sacrifice those things, what you'll find is you're entering into a kingdom community that will provide for you. So let me give you a couple examples. I resigned from a job that paid me a good amount. And immediately I thought of my family. And I thought, my family has money they can give me. My family has resources they can help me out. I'll be, I'll be okay. And then I immediately thought of my faith family as important, if not more, than, than my, my biological family. They said, they've got a lot of jobs and a lot of money and generosity, and they'll take care of me. I think this is what Jesus is saying. You lose your job, but you might find that there's 75 jobs around you with people who are willing to help you out, with people who are united to you in Christ. Um, actually, the day after I resigned, I got in a collision um, in my, my Mazda 3, and so I was already in like bomb shelter mode like in a month or two I'm going to be paycheck to paycheck so I've got to really clean up my finances now no more $400 haircuts okay <laughs> none of those things I've got to cut back on my plastic surgery schedule um, and I, I couldn't pay for a rental car right shot told me two weeks and so without asking I was just kind of telling the story I'm going to brag on Chris Bowers here one of the most selfless people that I know most of us know him and love him. Um, but Bowers, I think, is not given enough credit for how Christ-like he is. Um, Bowers comes up and goes, dude, just after service, let me drive you home. I'll give you a car. He's like, you don't have to do that. And he was like, no, I've got one I'm trying to sell. It's just in there. You can have it. And so I was like, okay, it should be in the shop for two weeks. I'll have it for two weeks. Um, after two weeks, they call me. They're like, it's going to be like three more weeks. So I'm like, hey, Bowers, <laughs> you might have had it for like three more weeks. He's like, yeah, dude, not a problem. And then three weeks come, and the shop's like, you know, we're looking like maybe two or three more weeks. It's like, <laughs> call Bowers again. Go, hey, man, I have no idea how long this thing's going to be. I don't know if I'm going to see it again. I don't know what's going to happen. Or it's like, dude, the car is yours right now. It's indefinitely yours. Just try to take care of it, you know, when it comes back. This is a perfect example of what happens in the kingdom community, right? I lose a car. What I find is I have 100 cars around me. Because I've got a family, a kingdom community that comes together and protects and serves and loves one another. This is what the early church did in Acts 4. Do you remember this? They pooled their money together. And whoever was in need, they gave money to. 
it's not necessarily that they sold all their possessions. Some of them were so wealthy. It's just that they didn't see those possessions as solely theirs. They were willing to let others use them. They were willing to, if God called them, sell them and give the money to somebody. We have congregations and or people in our congregation who have multiple houses, who have lots of boats, who have, uh, I mean, all kinds of really nice things. And, and what those people, I don't think are necessarily called to do is sell all those things. Perhaps if God leads them that way. But what I've seen is those people use those so generously. And while they're amazing properties and amazing assets, they're also amazing tools for the kingdom. And amazing ways for ministry to flourish. I think this is the point that Jesus is getting at. And I think the church needs to be more and more creative and committed to each other. Um, where my problem is your problem and your problem is my problem. And I know we could go around the room um, and some of them aren't even here this morning and um, we would have 50 or so stories. I've got all the notes in my office in a file um, where someone was in financial or job trouble and the congregation rallied around and gave them lots of money, uh, gave them a you know, vehicle, gave them, moved their whole house into another one, helped them, let them live with them for a while, um, found them a job. A team of people were like, we're pretty high up in management, we can get you a job somewhere, right? Find a job. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. This is what Kingdom Community is about, and this is where we need to be going. In Acts 4, it happens. How serious God is about it can be seen when um, God kills two people for lying about it. You remember in Acts chapter 5 in Ananias and Sapphira? They're not asked to sell everything and give it, right? All they're asked to do is just leave open hands, right? You can still own it. That's fine. It's going to be yours in a sense. Just know that ultimately it belongs to God and the kingdom community. But instead they say, we sold everything and we want to give it to you. And they kept it a little for themselves. And God killed them on the spot. I think while this is a very harsh reaction from God, I think it equally proves how serious he is about this. You don't get to keep a little bit for yourself. When you come into the community of faith, it's everyone's. And, while, and, and again, right? No one asks you to sell it. No one being silly. No one's expecting you to do that. But the fact that you had to hold on to some of it as your own, and you thought this was the perfect gimmick to think every to have everyone think you had fully bought in, but to still have your own stuff, God says, not another second. This is not the community that I've created to exist. Um, and, and I think this is the community that, that we are, in a large sense, and, and need to continue to strive towards. Um, let me give you one more example, uh, then we'll close it up. I read real recently, uh, so do you know about the payday loans, payday advances? Yes or no? You're just looking at me like... Um, Apparently, there's some crazy statistics, like there's two or three of them for every Starbucks. It's like one of the fastest growing uh, industries. And it's predatory lending. Um, and apparently, it's like really awful. I read a scathing <laughs> article about it. One lady borrowed $250. She needed a paycheck in advance to feed her children. And it has now turned into generational debt where her son owes about $15,000. And that's what all of these are built up to do, right? And I was talking about it with a professor of mine who's equally interested in some ethical things in the world. And I was like, yeah, it's crazy. I didn't know that it worked like that. There's got to be a better way. And I was like, how easy would it be? Like, why don't, 
why couldn't a church have a collective fund and do that themselves? And when someone says, hey, I, I, I'm not getting paid until Monday, but I don't have enough money to feed my kids for the weekend, we say, well, yeah, what do you need? Here's $500. What's the interest on it? Zero percent. What's the term lead? What's the, the term of the, the loan? Indefinite? I don't Whenever you can pay us back. And this fund would just replenish itself, right, if it was paid back. For every year, you could just put a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then you don't have church members going to these payday loans, getting preyed on. And then you have people outside going, they, they got a better system going. They're taking care of each other. I mean, what a beautiful witness to the world that would be. And let me just say, that's such a simple idea. FC Cube could have that set up tomorrow and running. How much more creative can we get? How many more cool ideas can we come up with? Ways for the community to take care of each other as an alternative to what we find in the world around us that preys on each other, that sees people as prophets and not as family. So as we close, let me um, leave you with a few things. Um, I think some good things to ask ourselves um, today is not, I don't think this is maybe something you should ask yourself. Should I sell everything I have? Maybe the Spirit's leading you that way, but I doubt that's the question you should probably be asking yourself. The question maybe you should ask yourself, and I would suggest you ask yourself is, am I committed to seeing all of my stuff with open hands? Am I committed to seeing my stuff as ways to benefit others? Am I committed to, if I needed to, sell it and use the money for something else? Is it mine, or, or are my hands open? Or maybe ask yourself, how honest am I about this? Like, how much do I really feel connected to the community? How much do I really feel like I can protect and serve and bless the people around me? This passage, to me, makes me do two things. It makes me a little anxious. And I think it should. I think that's an okay response. Because Jesus is very serious about this money thing. He's very serious that you're going to give an account for the way he did it. Um, so I'm a little anxious. But here's what the... the the second thing it needs to do is this. It just makes me want to make improvement. So when I do taxes for 2015, I want them to look more kingdom than when I did them for 2014. And in 2016, I'm hoping they'll be more kingdom than 2015. In 2017, better than 2016, right? I mean, I'm, I think a lot of times people go for the home run and they strike out, right? It doesn't work. But baby steps. Why not ask yourself, what can I do this month, maybe, that would, would be that in, that in that direction? What can I do this week? And I mean, if I did that every year, I might, by the grace of God, be like a six-year-old man who looks back on a life of generosity. And be able to be like, wow, let's do the spirit, really able to, to not be controlled by money. Baby steps. This month, this week, this year. That's what we're looking for. I wouldn't even suggest the home run. I think that's a good idea. As we come to the table and celebrate communion, receive communion, we come knowing that Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. And there's nothing God withholds from us. All that God has, including his very own life, he's willing to give for you and I. That's where we take our cue financially. It's from a God who gives everything to provide and protect and love on everybody. So as we come to the table... We come this morning to celebrate who Jesus is, what he has given for us, and to commit ourselves to more and more in small 
the meaningful steps to follow him faithfully. Can you pray together? Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for uh, all those who were able to step up and lead worship for us and do that throughout the service. We, we thank you for your scriptures. I ask that you would give us understanding into what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. I ask that you would not let the passage cripple us or paralyze us in fear or in anxiety, uh, but instead it would just be a spiritual checkup for us where we can ask ourselves, how are we doing and how could we do it better? Um, Father, I praise you for our congregation that has been nothing but generous. I praise you for a congregation that has never, ever led me to use the word tithe in the service. Um, you don't find that everywhere. And so I'm thankful for these people. And I'm thankful for the community you have built here and are building here. And I pray that we would just be faithful in building that up more and more. We love you so much. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God's people with me this morning prayed. Amen.